You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's open our Bibles together. We turn to the Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 12, the verses 1 to 24, which is also our text, Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all the Israelites had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nabat, heard this, he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon. He returned from Egypt, so they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam answered, Go away for three days, and then come back to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. They replied, If today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, They will always be your servants. But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. He asked them, what is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us? The young men who had grown up with him replied, Tell these people who have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam, as the king had said, Come back to me in three days. The king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given him by the elders. He followed the advice of the young men and said, My father made your yoke heavy, I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips, I will scourge you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people. For this turn of events was from the Lord to fulfill the word the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nabat, through Ahijah the Shilonite. When all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, O Israel, look after your own house, O David. So the Israelites went home. But as for the Israelites who were living in the towns of Judah, Rehoboam still ruled over them. King Rehoboam sent out Adoniram, who was in charge of forced labor, but all Israel stoned him to death. King Rehoboam, however, managed to get into his chariot and escape to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. When all the Israelites heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. Only the tribe of Judah remained loyal to the house of David. 
When Rehoboam arrived in Jerusalem, he mustered the whole house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 fighting men to make war against the house of Israel and to regain the kingdom for Rehoboam, son of Solomon. But this word of God came to Shemaiah, this man of God, Say to Rehoboam, son of Solomon, king of Judah, to the whole house of Judah and Benjamin and to the rest of the people, this is what the Lord says. Do not go up to fight against your brothers, the Israelites. Go home, every one of you, for this is my doing. So they obeyed the word of the Lord and went home again, as the Lord had ordered. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, all he wanted was a good debate. He wanted a good, old-fashioned, blunt debate. He wanted to discuss some of the current practices in the church as well as some of its doctrines. Some of these things troubled him deeply, and he hoped that by means of this debate, he would receive clarity and peace of mind. But alas, instead of a debate, he got a reformation. Martin Luther never planned, intended, or dreamed that this would happen. But you know, sometimes things turn out differently. Very, very differently. And that's the way it goes more often in history. You hope for one thing to happen, but the result is something else entirely. You tackle something minor, but before you realize it, it has become something major. Yes, and sometimes it becomes major in a negative kind of way. And of course, that happens in all kinds of situations. Sometimes a husband says something to his wife which he considers to be rather ordinary and insignificant. But before he knows it, a major battle has erupted. Little tongues cause huge fires. Little actions can do big damage. And unfortunately, this is also what King Rehoboam found out many years ago, the hard way. You know, beloved, it's summertime, and summertime is, I was told by one of my old teachers, the best time to have a few sermons on those historical parts of the Bible. He says, or he said, that it keeps the pew sitters awake and being tuned in during the hot dog days of summer. And as a result, I thought that it might be good to go to a rather obscure part of the Old Testament, a part that's rarely preached on, and pay some attention to it. After all, we believe and we confess that all of Scripture is profitable and God-breathed, and so we have to apply that principle to these chapters in 1 Kings as well. So there has to be profit, there has to be pay dirt, there has to be gold, also here in this part of God's holy word. We just need to do a little digging in order to find it. And so what are these chapters of 1 Kings, beloved, all about? 
Well, on the surface, they are about King Rehoboam, that stumbling, bumbling, inept son of King Solomon. They're also about a meeting and a press conference that looked innocent on the outside, but proved to be much, much more on the inside. For look what it leads to. I preached to you on the following theme, a kingdom sadly divided. We'll look first of all at the real cause, stupidity or sovereignty. The tragic consequence, rebellion or resignation, the gracious communication, war or peace. Now, beloved, I know that not all of you are students of history. Some of you find it a rather useless exercise. Why bother to snoop around in the past? How can you get excited about this ancient stuff? Before you make up your mind about this and close it completely, however, let me remind you about a few things. First of all, what the Bible here reveals, and not only here but also elsewhere, is not just any old kind of history. Now, it deals with what happened between God and his people Israel of long ago, or his people in the New Testament. Bible history is also divine history. In a sense, it's different. In a sense, also, you could argue it's special. The second thing to keep in mind with respect to Bible history, that it is also your history, too. If you're a believer, then you're connected. You're connected to God, but you're also connected to all the people of God. For you see, the Bible knows only one people of God, a people that stretch back to the Old Testament, on into the New Testament, and are still around today. A people composed of Jew and Gentile alike. And so in a way, what we have just read in 1 Kings chapter 12 is also part of our history, part of our genealogy, if you want. We are rummaging around here in the deeds of our spiritual forefathers. Only, it's not pretty. Some of you, perhaps most of you, know the story. Rehoboam, along with Israel, goes up to a place called Shechem, and, and Shechem is a place full of symbolism. That's where you'll find Jacob's well. That's where you'll find the burial place of Joseph. That's where you'll find the spot where Joshua renewed covenant with God and Israel. And now Rehoboam expects to be crowned there. There is a sense in which he's king already, but he wants it to be made nice and official. Only some of the people have other plans. Instead of an automatic coronation, they use it for a political confrontation. Mind you, it's not that they have anything against Rehoboam as such, but they sure had their, their beefs against his dad, King Solomon. And they want to make that crystal clear by recruiting a certain man by the name of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, to be their spokesman. 
And you may know this Jeroboam, you can read that in the previous chapter, 1 Kings 11, has a few credentials of his own. He had not liked King Solomon either and had staged a rebellion against him, only it had failed and Jeroboam or Jeroboam had hightailed it to Egypt in order to save his scrawny neck. And he'd managed to do that. Only now he's back. He's back most likely because the elders of Israel had invited him to come back and be their mouthpiece. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is that according to these people, King Solomon had treated them very, very badly. Jeroboam summarized it with these words, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Sounds reasonable, doesn't it? That after a time period of a lot of forced labor, a lot of heavy taxation, a lot of heavy loads of one kind or another, that the people want some form of relief. That shouldn't be a problem, should it? But notice, Rehoboam has to think about it. He needs three days to think about it. Now, either he's a slow thinker, or he's a cautious man. In any case, during those three days, notice he first calls together all the old fellows in Israel, the elders, and he asks them, what kind of advice would you give me? And they say, be lenient. They have a point. Give in to the demands of the people and you will have them in your pocket, so to speak, forever. Sounds good, sounds reasonable, but notice it doesn't sit well with Rehoboam. It says in verse 8 that Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him. He didn't like what they had to tell him and he has no intention of going there. So next he brings in all of his buddies. These are the fellows he's grown up with. They are his peers, his, his classmates, his chums. And he asks them for advice. And and what kind of advice do they give him? Rehoboam, don't be a pushover. Make your mark. Show these people what you're made of. Tell them the story of the little finger. You know, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. And tell them to expect scorpions Instead of whips, tell them that serving your father was a picnic. But serving me will be a whole new ball game, a lot tougher ball game. Now that, beloved, appears to have been music to Rehoboam's ears. Three days later, Jeroboam and all Israel are back. And what does Rehoboam tell them? Precisely what all of those young Turks had told him to say. Rehoboam is going to make his mark on the backs of his people. There's no way he's going to ease off. They'd better get used to the fact that they have a new and a lot tougher kind of king. 
Now, beloved, here at this point, it's precisely where things get, in a way you can say, both easy as well as tricky. For you see, at this point, it's rather obvious, and it should be rather apparent to you, that that probably the preacher should make some wise comments about ignoring Rehoboam, ignoring the wise advice of the gray beards and accepting the advice of the brown beards. Or perhaps the preacher should say something about the dangers of peer pressure. Or what about the arrogance of youth? Now, of course, there is some truth in all of those moralizing comments, and you can find that in our Bible passage here of this morning. But really and truly, if we go in that kind of a moralizing direction, we are in danger of missing the real biblical boat. For what we need to understand together this morning is that really this part of Scripture is not about a conceited king following stupid advice. No, really, this is about the great God of Israel exercising his sovereignty. Look at verse 15. Because that's the key to the entire chapter and the entire episode. So the king did not listen to the people for this turn of events, literally this twist, was from the Lord. To fulfill the word the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, through Ahijah the Shilonite. This turn of events was from the Lord. You see, what the biblical writer wants us to see, and what the Holy Spirit as well who works through this biblical writer wants us to see, is that there is much more going on here than meets the naked eye. And indeed, there is a way in which you can say here is a perfect illustration of how history operates on two levels. There is the level of man, of human wisdom, human actions, as well as reactions. But there's also the level of God, of his higher, greater, and deeper wisdom and actions. You can say in a matter of speaking that here human actions and divine sovereignty run parallel. And that's something we all need to realize. And I dare say we even need to realize it today. You know, people still have their agenda. Everybody has an agenda, right? You probably all have an agenda of of one kind or another, of of what you'd like to do and see and, and where you'd like to go in life. But realize God also and always has an agenda too. Rehoboam's agenda is all about showing this people that he's the new man in charge and I'm going to show them who's the boss. 
But God's agenda is about fulfilling his sovereign will. Earlier he had said to Jeroboam through Ahijah the prophet that he would receive ten tribes to rule over. And now he's about to bring that promise to fulfillment. Indeed, he uses Rehoboam's conceit, his bravado, his inflated opinion of himself to bring about the fulfillment of his will. And you know, that should teach us something. Something great about our God and about his sovereignty and supremacy. Surely it teaches us that that our God, not only then, but also today, uses all kinds of people and all kinds of human circumstances to bring about his will. Why, it teaches us even that God sometimes uses very dumb, silly people to bring it to pass. What people think, say, and do never catches him off guard. No, he just uses it to bring his plan to fruition. And so, beloved, when hard struggles, silly people, disastrous events, painful setbacks come your way, don't despair. Continue to cling to God's sovereignty over all things and and keep on hanging on to that marvelous promise. God works for the good in one way or another, for those who love him. God works ultimately for the good of those who love him. But back to the story. Rehoboam no sooner lays down the law and the predictable happens. The people rebel and shout, what? Share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, O Israel, look after your own house, O David. Quite simply, the people say, we're out of here. We want no part of the rule or reign of King Rehoboam. From now on, you can jolly well fend for yourself. But of course, that's not all the people say. Notice, it goes a bit deeper. For twice the name of David is mentioned, and once David is mentioned even indirectly with the words Jesse's son. Now that should make you wonder. After all, the people's fight is with Rehoboam. So why are they picking on David? At the very least, their fight is with King Solomon. So why are they jabbering on and on here about King David? Yes, and and notice later on in the passage, it's mentioned again and again, verse 19, so Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Verse 20, only the tribe of Judah remained loyal to the house of David. 
It's all David and more David. And meanwhile, it's Rehoboam who does all the damage. So why blame David? Well, beloved, the reason why Israel mentions the name of David is because they are doing more here than simply rejecting King Rehoboam. They are also rejecting and turning their back on the entire house and throne of David. They no longer want any part or parcel of, of him and of Jeroboam or Rehoboam. As far as they're concerned, the tie has been severed once and for all. It's over. It's finished. David is dead, and now his house, his throne, as far as we are concerned, is just as dead as he is. So what does that reaction show you? Well, surely, beloved, it teaches you, it should show you that Rehoboam is not the only one who has lost his marbles here. The people have as well. For in rejecting David's house and David's throne, they are rejecting the covenant that God had made with David. You can read about that covenant in 2 Samuel 7. The idea, the promise that David would always have a son on his throne and that ultimately that those sons of his would give birth to the greatest son of all, Jesus Christ. 2 Samuel 7 talks about the fact that David's going to have a throne forever. And only the Messiah can make that happen. So for people to reject David means they're rejecting the Messiah, the hope and the consolation of Israel. And what they're saying, they're cutting themselves off from their messianic future. And that's sad. As a matter of fact, that's downright dumb. But then, beloved, our text directs the spotlight back on Rehoboam, and you cannot help but notice that this king just doesn't get it. He is denser than dense. For next, he decides to send a man by the name of Adoniram to read the right act to Israel. And who is Adoniram? He's a slave master. He's the slave master. He's the guy who epitomizes everything that these people found wrong in the reign of King Solomon. And he goes to the Israelites. And of course, instantly they see red and they stone him to death. Talk about a rocky reception. But that's not all. For Rehoboam must have been lurking somewhere in the background. And no sooner does he see Adoniram stoned and he hightails it back to Jerusalem and he barely escapes with his life. 
So, beloved, between Rehoboam and Israel, they make a great, huge mess of everything. Rehoboam loses most of his kingdom. Israel rejects its messianic future. And we ask ourselves, what's left? What a chronicle of grief and sorrow and disaster and stupidity. No one gets anything right. But yeah, that's not the end of this lamentable tale, for Rehoboam has one more trick up his sleeve. Once Jeroboam has been crowned king of the ten tribes, Rehoboam decides to call out his army, all 180,000 men, by hook or by crook, by force or by blood, he's going to win back his kingdom. No matter what it costs, he's going to win it back. And meanwhile, as we read this, we ask ourselves, will this tale of woe never end? Will this tragic state of affairs never be over? Oh, not as far as man is concerned. You know, there is this common human propensity that when we dig holes for ourselves, we tend to dig them deeper and deeper and deeper. And that's what happens here. But thankfully, at a certain moment, God steps in. He recruits Shemariah and tells him to speak to Rehoboam, to the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, as well as to all the people. The Lord speaks to everyone. And he tells everyone, forget it. Don't go up to fight against your brothers, the Israelites. Go home, every one of you. For this is ultimately my doing. He reminds them of the bottom line, that the the rupture of this kingdom is at bottom his doing. It represents his plan. It's part of his will, part of his judgment even. And finally, finally at last, we don't know how except but to attribute it to the Spirit of God, some form of sanity sinks in, and Rehoboam and all the people go home. But did they get it? Do we get it? Today? Because I remind you that all of this teaches us some very remarkable contemporary things. First of all, it it should teach us very clearly even today that the promises of our God are always true and steadfast. You know, the Lord made a covenant with David. And you can see here by continuing to prop up Rehoboam and his two tribes that there is no way that he's ever going to allow that covenant that he made with David to be tossed aside. The people may be dumb, the king may be dumb, but God is always wise. 
He keeps on preserving a remnant. He keeps the line to the Messiah open. There are at least some people who do not reject the house and the throne of David. God keeps moving forward, in other words. And how we should rejoice in that awareness. For had he allowed it to be terminated at this particular juncture in human history, there would be no great son called Jesus. There would have been no salvation for people then and no salvation for us today. No, God's covenant stands. And therefore our salvation stands as well. His word is true and sure. But that's not all. Notice as well something also that arises out of our text. God has his Limits. He sees the stupidity of Rehoboam. And by the way, stupid and stupidity are not nice words, but they are proper English words that sometimes need to be used. So God sees the stupidity of Rehoboam. He sees the stupidity of his people. He watches things as they go from bad to worse. But then notice at a certain moment, he intervenes. And he says, enough is enough. I've had it with all of this human foolishness. Quite simply, God restrains his people. He prevents The king from committing royal suicide. He prevents the people from committing national suicide. God restrains. You may know that that theme of God's restraint comes back later on in Scripture in Romans chapter 1 where the Apostle Paul also speaks about God restraining not just his own people, but all people. But then Paul says there, there does come a time where sometimes God lifts the restraint. And we get to experience the ultimate consequences of our ignorance and arrogance. But thankfully here, God sets a limit. And how thankful we should be for that. That God does not leave his people to their own devices. That even though we sometimes lose our mind, he never does. That we may forget all about mercy, but he never does. That we may throw love out of the window, but he never does. Our God keeps his word. And he watches over his people. And throughout it all, he maintains the greatness of his most holy name. Great is our God and worthy to be praised. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web 
at www.langleycanrc.org.